Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Madeline Puckett describes herself as a musician and graphic designer gone wine geek. And wine geek only scratches the surface. She is a certified sommelier with Court of Master, has written a New York Times bestseller book titled Wine Folly, The Essential Guide to Wine, and she is the content director and video host at winefolly.com, a site that has won the Wine Blogger of the Year distinction from the International Wine and Spirits Competition. Though Madeline and Wine Folly are based in Seattle, she travels widely to experience and then tell compelling stories about wineries, regions, and winemakers. I'm thrilled to have her on since I have relied on her blog, social feeds, and book in the past two or three years to develop a smarter and crisper understanding of why I like the wines I do and where I should I branch out given that I like certain wines and not others. So Madeline, let's do this. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's begin. What's your personal narrative? What's your history and your mo- motivation to launch Wine Folly? And can you give us a little background on who you are and how the twists and turns in your life led to the here and now? Yeah. You know, I, uh, you know, you mentioned I was a graphic designer and, and musician, and that was very true. I went to Los Angeles when I turned 18, the fresh age of 18 to go make it in the world of music in Los Angeles. I studied at California Institute of the Arts. And if you want to make it in the music business, everybody knows that just means you're basically going to have a job until you either make it or you don't. <laughs> and so I decided to get a dual major in art and music so that I could pay for my music fetish (laughs) with a graphic design job, which there were many at the time in L.A., lots of stuff to do. I can remember going to the art openings we used to have at CalArts, and there was the red-flavored wine and the white-flavored wine. It was all two-buck check, Mm -hmm. and that was what you drank at at an art opening. They didn't really serve beer so much. It was more about serving wine. So wine and art went together. So it seemed like the sophisticated thing to do. When I turned 21, my dad got me a wine subscription, which I thought was the coolest thing for a dad to get a 21-year-old. And at the time I was living in my art studio, I was a pretty meager situation. And uh, those two bottles would come in once a month, and they were the most impressive things that I would get to eat or consume in the entire month mm-hmm. whatsoever because back then I was on sort of a bean and rice and lettuce diet, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it was cheap. That sort of opened my eyes to wine immediately sort of putting it on a pedestal and appreciating it and taking the time to enjoy it. It was several years later when I tried a bottle actually from the Cote de Rhone region mm-hmm. and it tasted like olives. And before then, wine to me was this thing that was supposed to taste like fruit. Mm -hmm. And I understand that olive is a fruit, but olive is a savory fruit. It is a savory vegetable. It goes on pizza kind of fruit. And so it it was an eye-opening experience for me that wine can be something else. And I kept that with me. I was still interested in wine. I started buying wine You know, I was working as a designer, trying to make music. Eventually, I ended up in Reno, Nevada, not so much making it in the L.A. industry. You know, I was doing a lot of recording music that would go to people all over the world. And I figured I could be anywhere and do this anywhere. Let's live a little bit cheaper. This was around 2008 sort of market 
crisis that we had. And uh, I was working at a, a big uh, newspaper doing just really crappy <laughs> ad work, mm-hmm. you know, and then uh, I got laid off and I go into a wine bar to drink my sorrows away. And the wine bar owner is like, you know, you seem to know a thing or two about wine. You know, he was kind of quizzing me while I was sitting there and we were having a good time. He's like, I would love to have someone help me out here. I really honestly haven't had a day off since I opened this wine bar four months ago. So it was kind of happenstance and very lucky that I started working at a wine bar. And that was my in. And after that, it was so natural. Like, I was just interested Mm -hmm. and I wanted to do more and I wanted to learn more about the flavors of wine and why do I taste the things that I do? And that is ultimately what got me into wine was this one little opportunity. And since then, starting Wine Folly the blog, it was about, you know, my experience coming from being an absolute beginner to knowing a thing or two about wine. I saw all these problems between a beginner's knowledge and then the advanced level person's knowledge, including how the advanced person treats the beginner person. There's this sort of disconnect. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, because it's difficult to learn about wine, that there's this kind of hold it over your head sort of mentality, like name dropping different bottle names or have you tasted this? Have you tasted that? Like every particular year. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Oh, I remember the 82s, you know, like, and so I was, you know, being sort of a progressive person, like that didn't make sense to me. Anyone who is curious enough should be able to experience wine. And that's why we started the blog. And it was myself and my partner, Justin, my boyfriend. And uh, we just, he is an internet genius. I think he's like the internet's own boy plus. (laughs) And so he was like, oh, I'll just help you build this blog and we can see how it does. And, And he just helped me manifest the site create the wordpress blog for it and then i and then he's like now you got to fill it with good content Mm. and uh so i started basically relearning how to learn wine through this blog and teaching people new things and because i was a graphic designer i I always thought i was a terrible writer and i would be like okay well well, maybe i can use a picture to explain (laughs) what i'm thinking here because mm-hmm. i can't put it in words and so i would create these really cool infographics where you'd follow it would be like a flow chart and you would find your way into a bottle of wine or and, and that sort of thing and that created this massive movement in the wine business now i'll see like infographics everywhere and mm-hmm. i'm like i know where they got that idea yeah. <laughs> and so it's really been amazing it's actually helped so many people in the wine business communicate what was once in a really opaque idea that's how it all started. Mm-hmm. And it it literally started with, in 2012, after we launched, I made an infographic. It was called How to Choose Wine. I put it out, and it was a flowchart, and it went, I don't know if the coefficient of viral, if it's actually viral. Like, viral is not actually a thing if you want to get into it, but it did really well, and it spread far and wide. And so my partner was like, well, we need to make it just for sale. So he put it up on PayPal. Like, you could buy it on PayPal. And we're like, we got to get it printed now. (laughs) So we contacted actually another Seattle awesome blogger cartoonist, The Oatmeal. Mm -hmm. And we're like, hey, dude, where do you get your posters printed? (laughs) 
And so he hooked us up with a printer locally here in Seattle. And we started printing our posters there, too. So that's how we made our first run of posters. And we had a huge stack of posters in our tiny little apartment in Capitol Hill. Like, imagine 600 square feet, one of those open bedroom, open mm-hmm. one bedrooms, like they call them like junior one bedrooms, two cats, my, my partner who's six foot four, mm-hmm. <laughs> and myself all living together. Then we have like... The entire hallway going up to the door had shipping tubes. Like we had to ship these things somehow. So we had shipping tubes and a little station. So we'd roll the posters. It's like a third of your space. It was least. like, yeah. no, it was like, it was like 80% <laughs> was dedicated to uh-huh. this, this like process of rolling posters and shipping them. I remember the first posters we shipped to Dubai mm. and Ireland and all around the world. So we realized that people actually wanted to learn about wine and this visual method was a good technique for explaining a complex thing. And so I just started making more Mm -hmm. and I made a bunch more. And then I got reached out to by a publisher and they were like, let you should make a book. And honestly, we had initially had the goal that this would be an online thing and it would only exist in the online format because here I am with the Internet's own Boy Plus and myself as a wine person. And I'm a digital girl like I did music technology and, and composition. That's what I studied in school. And so I was very much in the sort of laptop mindset. So I didn't understand why do you need a physical book? Mm-hmm. There's no point to that. I think I got sort of obsessed with the idea of my grandmother having one because she has like this huge library and my grandfather was the one who got my granddad into wine. And so I I made this whole sort of story mm-hmm. about it and I'm imagining her like having it in her book shelf, <laughs> you know, in this in Tennessee where all the books have a smell to them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was it. Like, okay, well, if my grandmother's like if it gets reviewed in the New York Times, like she'll care, <laughs> and like cause she's like a she's a very classy lady. So I made this maybe like well we can we should totally make a book. It would be good marketing. Let's do it. You could write a book proposal, and we could do exactly what you want and get a book. Cause I was like, wine is for the people. I'm I'm a I'm a little bit of a proletariat mm-hmm. in that way. Like wine, I think that. You know, everyone drinks beer, but we actually have an amazing terroir in America for growing wine grapes, too. Like, why do we not drink as much wine? Like, at least half, you know, mm-hmm. like as much as we drink beer. Because wine is an amazing agricultural product. I would say that beer is an amazing agricultural product, too. Let's just be fair. Give beer its day in the sun. But I think that that wine has its, its a fair share, too. So... I, uh, what was I saying? <laughs> well, you know, what's striking me is I've talked to a lot of people about many different subjects and, and I've talked to myself as well and serendipity and happenstance and how you find yourself doing what you do is a very common theme from people who are specialists in crow behavior, who I talked to last week <laughs> to foragers, uh, Langdon cook, a local forager who looks for morel mushrooms. They oh, all yummy. through happenstance. Can find I be them. friends with them? You could. <laughs> I love yeah, morels. Just, yeah, go amazing. to the blog and, and take a look. And, and he has actually uh, classes and lectures that he does every spring. I am so on yeah. board with that because mushrooms and wine. Oh. Mm-hmm. Hey, I interviewed him and I'm on the waiting list for his April 28th shellfish foraging class. So I, I need to talk to him. But there's <laughs> happenstance. I started as a business major 
Wow. And I took a law course because it was part of business. And then I took constitutional law. And then it occurred to me I need a little philosophical background in order to understand constitutional law. And then philosophy sucked me out of pre-business, pre-law. Whoa. Became a philosopher. And then as a philosopher, I said, oh, I can do your website. And I can do the English department's website. And then suddenly I became a designer. And now Whoa. here I am in marketing. So it really is a random pinball how we end up where we end up. And your story really struck <laughs> But your core is in philosophy. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. The more I learn about wine and the human experience of Mm -hmm. wine, the more I get into philosophy. This idea of the human experience. What is the human experience? Mm -hmm. Which I think is a philosophical topic. I'm not sure. You can say yes or no. Well, given my background, (laughs) you might get philosophical questions thrown at you during this session. Okay. So... (laughs) What do you consider the vision of wine folly? I think you, you've mentioned some of it already and have you achieved it? And how has it changed over time as you interact with fans or with trolls for that matter? Because you mentioned you're the proletariat, right? You have that proletariat movement. Yeah. So that has something to do with your vision, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The You know, the mission is... Uh I should have a I should have an elevator pitch mm, or you know, a little card with it laminated. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. It's it's very very simple. It's that you can learn more about wine, and what we have created at Wine Folly empowers you with the tools you need to learn more about wine on your own, because everything else will just tell you what to think. We want you to think what to think Mm -hmm. and give you the methods, the tools, the potential to see what's out there in the wine world and make sense of it and then follow your own path where because there are so many options and Mm -hmm. choices. I saw you with a coat Derona shot enough to pop Mm -hmm. out there. And that is a whole segment of a population of a drinker who can go down a fun, interesting path and wherever it will take you. Mm -hmm. But I know what you should try next, Mm -hmm. you know, based on the fact that you like that wine. And it is a matter of taste. And that's the interesting thing about wine is everybody's personal experience with wine is completely different. And so much of that personal experience with wine that people have has an emotional connection to when they first tasted wine or who they were tasting it with or where they were when they had that glass, that aha wine that was like, oh, Wine isn't just an alcoholic beverage. It's a, it's like a form of art. Some people don't have that experience ever, but some people do. They'll have a wine and they'll taste it and they'll be like, aha, I get it. This is good wine. It doesn't have to be fancy. Mine was $15 a bottle. Yeah. And so that's interesting. The way you're describing it, and let's put a little philosophy and in, in a way psychology into the mix. What you're describing is you're providing people with a framework in which to help articulate or understand the flavors, the their responses to highly subjective aesthetic phenomena yeah. that occurs with them. And people, if you give them that framework and help them understand and decipher, decode what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, that's a very different experience from telling them, this is better, this is worse, you should do this absolutely. And I think that a lot of people, in, and correct me if I'm wrong, in wine culture, have that intimidating factor to them or people think that's what wine culture is about there's a judgments aesthetic judgments about right or wrong and what you're providing is actually a framework for people to start understanding themselves better 
And maybe if something's right or wrong, it's relative to their own understanding and their own framework. Yeah, that's exactly right. And right now it's a blog, but we're going to make it into so much more of what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. this framework. Um, I have a big, aggressive plan this year, uh, and it's going to hopefully I can pull it off. Mm -hmm. And it will be really cool uh, if we can. And I have a partner working with me now, or an assistant working with me now, and we're going to hire some other folks. I actually put out a job opening for basically what would have been my dream job it's it's like basically professional wine taste <laughs> but you have to have experience like you have to understand what to taste on a very high level is so th- that i think my assistant has over 60 <laughs> or so applications wow. to go through for this That'll position be an interesting interview. For professional yeah. wine taster yeah Mm-hmm. I know it's very it's very because everybody's experience with wine is a little bit different, but there are some fundamental aspects of wine that are true and that are not subjective. Mm-hmm. And if you can identify those non-subjective things, it's kind of like art mm-hmm. and the medium that you're using, like a painting. It's put on some kind of me- a board of some kind. Is it is it canvas? Is it on wood? What does that mean in terms of how long it will last? Or is this medium type uh, something that will last? Or is it or is it temporal? Is it mm-hmm. on paper? Is it designed to disappear with time? Like how am I supposed to experience this art? And the, and you can kind of identify sort of different realms of art, and then go wherever your heart takes you mm-hmm. once you know what's out there. Yeah. And so the same kind of thing happens with wine, except you get to drink it. Yeah, and the, <laughs> the philosophy of aesthetics, there's a distinction between formal properties of a work of art and then relational properties that have, um, when an appreciator interacts with the object. So mm. you want to talk about the formal properties it has, which are theoretically objective, and then the relational properties is uh, the human interaction with those properties suddenly causes certain responses. So I could go on, and I probably won't, because that will be a whole other <laughs> That's podcast. really cool, but actually it brings up this interesting point. When you were talking about philosophy, there's this guy, um, 19, I want to say teens and 20s. Uh, his name is... We can play like a clue. Do, do, do. I think it starts with a D, something D, something, and he, he, he coined this term, the art of experience. John Dewey. John Dewey. Mm-hmm. Gold star. Thank you. John Dewey. He started talking about what the art of experience and wine fits that. Mm-hmm. If you want to have, if, and that's why some wines are so dissatisfying. If you're not having a good experience around that wine. Like, give me a $6 crappy mass market made bulk wine, mm-hmm. but take me to a top <laughs> on a long, after a long bike ride and the top of a mountain and I'm sipping. And if you can manage to give it to me cold, mm-hmm. that will be the best tasting wine I've ever had. And so this is sort of this idea of the art of experience and that you can create experiences around it so in that respect it is a proletariat thing anyone Mm -hmm. can do it you just have to care so this is what the site's all about how do i figure out 
how to create this art of experience on my own, whether it's the do I need tools to create a traditional setting wine experience or do I need to get outside of the box and try something new that maybe I've never had before. Mm. And this podcast and this site is about places and placemaking and it's about not just the physical properties of places but emotional and cultural properties. So now that you talked about having a wine experience within certain locales, I want to veer a little bit yeah. and talk about what are the features of a place or a region that have a direct influence on the qualities or character of wine? People always say it's the terroir. What, mm-hmm. what are those elements that directly impact the quality of wine that people should, should key in on? One of the big things that greatly affects wines year to year has to do with the time period in the shoulder seasons, spring and fall. And We're experiencing a very long, Mm. arduous shoulder season right now in Seattle. It's been very, very cool. It's been very rainy, you know, this year compared to last year and the year before. This reminds me quite a bit of 2011 here in Seattle. Like I'm remembering the same kind of feeling that I felt in 2011. And sure enough, 2011, and I'm guessing this year, were actually very cool vintages in Washington for wine. And they produced wines with much more tart flavors because of that if you can think imagine a fruit becoming ripe and those shoulder seasons that experience the shoulder season being shortened shortened the then the tomato doesn't get 100% ripe so you make a wine with more tartness so cooler climate growing regions Oregon Germany parts of France parts of northern Italy are like this too where there are inclement weather mm-hmm. is one of is one of the things that will greatly affect the grapes. When you're in an, a region and you're looking in a valley and you're looking at the vineyards in the bottom of the valley mm-hmm. and then on the, on the low slope going up the side of the hill, more often than not, the finer wines come from that sloped area. And it has to do with the drainage in that region, so how the area drains. And they always say uh, one of the... Things that I've always heard viticulturists say who grow Syrah, they're like, oh, Syrah likes a view. Mm. And so some of the best vineyards are in these amazing view sites where the winds can freely come through and keep away rot and fungal diseases from the grapes and where the, the soil is not too deep. So there's not too much vigor in the vines. You want to actually make the grapes struggle a little bit. You know, when you're working out and you really mm-hmm. want to get to yeah, your get marathon swole. goal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you have to struggle a little bit and it's really hard and you build this body mass and you make yourself all strong. The same thing kind of happens with the grape when they're struggling a little harder. They produce much more concentrated grapes. Um, so on these hills aside vineyards, we're starting to notice that these areas and the highest rated Grand Cru vineyards in Burgundy are this way where they're on the sort of the sloped area and uh, drainage is better too. Mm. So the grapes don't like to have their feet wet. And uh, what about the quality of the soil itself? I remember um, a conversation about Riesling, something about the clay or the slate and which is a part of the soil. So the, the elements or minerals that are in the soil also have an impact as well. Yeah. they um, Well, it's very interesting. You know, this, this question of minerality, that, that everyone's really excited about. A lot has happened in the last maybe two years that has pointed to the regional terroir of microbes in a particular region have more effect on the taste of minerality in the wine than the actual rocks do. But 
because those microbes only survive on those rocks and in that dirt, Mm -hmm. that is the environment that they've grown accustomed to and built this sort of microbe, Mm -hmm. you know. So if I'm understanding correctly, it might be less about what type of soil type it is, but the supervenient property of these type of microbes grow best in this soil. So really what has the direct effect is the microbes, but they live in this They live in this soil, exactly. So you'll notice... I started asking this question seriously because here I am trying to teach people about minerality and I realized nobody knew anything about minerality, even in the wine business. Like there was no straight answer. They were like, we can't, we know it affects it because it does, but we don't know why. Because if you taste a wine made in clay soils versus a sandy soil, like let's say Riesling, Alsace, great example. They have some more clay soils in Alsace and some more sandy soils in Alsace. And the ones in sandy soils tend to be more pretty and aromatic, whereas the clay soils are produce a much more robust, sort of flavorful. Like they might not have as intense floral aromatics, but when you taste them, they're very rich on the palate with the more clay soils. And they're like that with all grape varieties. And so people are wondering, well, why sandy and why clay? If it's too productive, if it's too loamy, too much humus, too much organic matter, that it doesn't produce good grapes. And everyone's trying to figure it out. And then more recently, a couple of studies came out, one in New Zealand, I think, and then two in the United States or in University of Davis, maybe, comparing the microbe populations, all just with Chardonnay grapes, microbe population in this wine versus that wine. And then you start going, well, that's interesting. Then why is everybody inoculating with non-native yeasts? So we start asking these sort of philosophical questions about our choices as winemakers. Like you can buy a yeast from Germany to ferment your Riesling in, you know, but then you're like... challenge to the notion of terroir if you can sort of isolate these elements across the flavor and just do a chemistry set independently. um, Yeah. That's how you lose a romantic feel of yeah being from a it's like well then i could basically replicated. i could basically just get a bunch of soil together from the best vineyard in the world put it inside a i mean this would be ridiculous mm-hmm. but put it inside an environmentally controlled facility like they grow the weed greenhouses here and then completely control the lighting so that i could simulate a perfect vintage and make a perfect wine that way wouldn't that be like couldn't I do that? And so like when you go to the extreme, <laughs> you start seeing the, the error in your in your thinking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so a place, so there's some physical things. How the climate is in that place where it grows, how much sunshine it gets really makes a huge difference. Low sunshine places literally won't even be able to ripen certain grape varieties. Whereas too much sun, other grape varieties like Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, they they need just the right amount. They're like the baby bear. Just the right amount of sun. Not too much, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not too little. And then there's grapes like Nebbiolo, which is like, give me sun. Mm -hmm. I look so good. And so, you know, these are physical characteristics you can pay attention to in a region. And so when you get good, you have your like sweet spot. Maybe there's 20 to 40 different grape varieties you're familiar with. You know, working Albarino, Nebbiolo, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Merlot, Carmenere, things like that. You know enough about that grape to know what kind of climate it grows well in. And then if you hear somebody's like, oh, dude, 
I just got an Albarino from Washington State. What do you think? And you go, huh. Well, I know that Albarino typically grows in marine-based climates because of where it grows in Riaspicius, and that means they probably have a, a longer shoulder season, which means I wonder if Albarino can handle that much sun because Washington's got a lot of sun. But Washington does have, it is very high up on the latitude, meaning that it has really long sunny days, but then very cold nights. So I'd be like, yeah, actually, I would, I would wonder what that would taste like. I can already imagine what it would taste like, what Washington terroir would do with a grape like Albarino. Like it would probably be, if you've ever had Albarino before, it's this very lean, almost Riesling-like white wine that's not as aromatic. Actually, it's quite aromatic, but it's more like lime and lemon, and it's and it's not quite as sweet smelling. It's like it's like it's like Sauvignon Blanc without the bell pepper. It's like Sauvignon Blanc or Pinot Grigio. I don't know. I don't even know how to describe Albarino. I should I should have picked an easier grape. Um, that that growing in Washington climate, I imagine, would become way more fruity. Like it would just be a peach explosion. Like instead of lime and lemon, mm -hmm. it would become more fat and peachy and rich instead of this where it would grow in a cooler climate. So, so okay, we've got climate issues. We've got the slope of the terrain, mm -hmm. those that have a view, those that are at the bottom. We have terrain quality, which actually might be the microbes in yeah. it. So maybe we can save terroir and talk about this are these are all physical and climate related characteristics what about the influence of cultural properties oh, the people yeah. in these regions and are there examples of specific cultural practices that have an impact on the wine so maybe that's how we can save it because you could take all the physical properties put it in a in a bubble but what is it about the people and the place and the practices in that that, that make it a character? is the kicker hmm. because when you look at a place and the tradition, especially in these regions that have been making wine for over 100 years, they have been working with these grapes for hundreds of years. So they've learned how to train the grapevines in a certain way to produce the results that they want. And they've learned how to make the wines in a certain way. One great example of that. Uh, I, I have to bring it up because it is so bizarre and unique, is Amarone della Valpolicella. This is a wine made predominantly with a grape called Corvina. Not important. You don't have to remember the grape name. Just remember Amarone. Amarone is taken. They pick the grapes, and then they lay them on these mats. They set the mats in their cellar, in a dry room, basically. It's usually above the cellar. It's like in the attic. They'll let them to hang out and to dry until they lose about 40% of their moisture. And then they'll take and press these sort of dried, raisinated grapes and make wine with the, like, half raisins. And that's what Amarone della Valpolicello is. And the reason they did that, and I'm inferring this. I don't really know, honestly. But I think the reason they did that was because back in the day, before Amarone del Valpolicella was the thing, everyone was really into sweet wines. And here they had these tart, darn tart Corvina grapes, and nobody gives a crap about Corvina. What do we do to make them sweeter? 
and and they started drying them and pressing them and making the sweet wine called Recioto. Recioto della Valpolicella. It sounds very beautiful. Mm-hmm. And uh, then when dry wines became more fanatical, when we became more fanatical about dry, about dry wines, which honestly wasn't until the 1960s, mm. they started creating this Amarone wine. And it's still using this dried grape process, but they make a sweeter, richer, like a bold, full-bodied, instead of this tart. You know, if you take Corvini and you make it into a wine, it makes this I think it's really beautiful, but some people would disagree with me. It's tart cherry. It's a little carob. It it has some spice, cinnamon spice notes to it, but it's very light on the palate. It's great food wine. It's an amazing food wine. But when you make the raisinated grapes, it makes it a more higher full body, like 15% alcohol. So it has this huge, rich, lush palate on the taste and then you taste the cherries but they're like sweet cherries and raspberries and then you've got the carob turns into this sort of like chocolatey hazelnutty note so it's very desirable Mm -hmm. and that would be an example of how people have figured out how to sort of imbue their tradition of figuring out how to make wine desirable in a certain way and another example of that's champagne Here's a wine that was probably a still wine originally that now is bubbly based on a tradition that goes back to, well, the 1600s. And I mean, possibly before that, there were some people doing sort of sparkling wines. It's basically whenever we figured out how to make glass bottles, that's when sparkling wine was invented. (laughs) Because before that, it was just in barrels. You know, you're talking about all these places and I really want to talk about some of your travels across these regions and yeah. any key experiences of these places that are memorable to you. So what are some of your favorite places, those that trigger very strong emotional responses in you? Not necessarily the the greatest hits, but that had a very idiosyncratic response in you that just stays with you and is part of the fabric of who you are. Yeah, I will never forget going to Portugal. This is a place that, you know, it's still pretty affordable to go to Portugal, but back when I went in 2011, I think, 11 or 12, it was very down and out region, and they were struggling. And here they have their primary produce. The only wine anybody knows from Portugal is this sweet dessert wine called Port, which is not that popular. I mean, it's delicious. It's a wonderful wine. I love it. But you're talking to somebody who tastes like I taste everything so I know where that one fits in my in my repertoire but going to Portugal and seeing these the way the people live in Portugal was eye opening you know every vineyard has a patch of cabbage they all grow their own cabbage and it's not like our cabbage their cabbage is a little more like kale mm-hmm. like a flat kale like mm-hmm. and it's really rich dark leaves and they make the soup called I think it's called calverde mm-hmm. with the kale with the cabbage leaves, and it's very simple, poor person food with no meat, no nothing in it. It's just cabbage leaves and water, basically. And it's amazing. And every Calverde in all the different regions tastes slightly different because the cabbage grows differently in the different climates. Mm. And so you get this direct correlation between the food you're eating there and the wine that is produced there, too. Um, and I won't forget that. And the amount of, they've been making, growing grapes in the Douro Valley for over 2,000 years. It's a UNESCO heritage site. And th- the way that man has sort of carved out the shapes mm. 
in the sides of the hills is it's slightly disturbing <laughs> while whilst being incredibly beautiful at the same time. And you kind of have this really strange emotional response of the way humanity has affected the world. And I still, to this day, it completely changed the way I looked. I look at anything manufactured. So I'll go to a city. I used to be obsessed about cities and these buildings and the grit and the, mm -hmm. the brick warehouses and, the, and that. And now I see it as this effect of humanity on the landscape. Like I try to imagine what would Seattle be like before, right? And you go through this. And so that, so Portugal to me forced me to ask those questions and in a unique way and just seeing the landscape, it's in very intense, very hard to live landscape. Um, that was probably one of the most amazing. And then small caveat, Australia was the first wine region I went to. And I'll always remember that because I was a nobody, like wine folly. Nobody knew wine folly. And the people, the way you would try to get a tasting there and hustle your way into stuff, like it was, it was very cool because they were very chill. And their, their sort of relationship with wine is a lot more relaxed. In the U.S., we kind of put, the, put wine on this pedestal. But in Australia, it's like, beer, it's like beer to them in a lot of ways. Like, it's just wine, you know, and mm -hmm. they, they're very chill about it. But they have a huge agribusiness around the wine. They make quite a, quite a lot of wine. And when I was there, I remember everywhere you went, in Sydney, in South Australia, in Adelaide, uh, everyone would hang their clothing out to dry in just outside mm -hmm. like everyone yeah. like they didn't use dryers mm -hmm. and and it's like southern california the climate there it was like very socal feeling and nobody's drying wasting energy <laughs> i remember that i was walking through sydney i forgot the name of this neighborhood it had a very a lot of vowels woo mulu something like that <laughs> and you were walking it was desolate it looked like a Giorgio the shiriko painting but with Laundry, laundry hanging across the street and I mean, everyone hangs hmm. their laundry and i remember just recently i remember someone complaining about their ccnrs of the place where they live they wanted to hang their laundry out and they were not allowed to do so mm -hmm. they like their landlord sent them a letter you can't put your laundry out and they're like i don't want to use the dryer yeah, yeah we went to um 2014 we did a three-week tour of northern spain and northern spain is really interesting because oh, it's yeah. unlike the arid stereotype you have around southern Spain because it has tremendous differences in geography and climate there. You have the, the verdant Basque country. Yeah. You have the mountain ranges in Asturias. You have the almost Celtic feel of Galicia. We didn't go into Portugal. Um, I wish we had, but then when we curved in back... Alberino country. Apparently, but I didn't even know it. I didn't even try. And uh, <laughs> we curved back and went through León, and that was more uh, arid. Yeah. So we saw the tremendous variety just within a... I mean, if you took that northern Spain route, it would probably take you 24 hours to yeah. do that whole route. Just yeah, no nonstop. time at all. Yeah. And amazing the amount of var variation, and not just in wine, but the food and the cultural differences between the Basques and the Asturians and the Galician. I mean, it's, yeah. it's tremendous. Galician. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> they, they corrected yeah. me. Yeah. I remember. Well, I grew up in Mexico, and for me it's Galicia. Oh, yeah, it's Galicia. So for them it's Galicia with the yeah. lisp. Yeah. We would call it a lisp in Mexico. But, no. You know. <laughs> what are some of the unknown or criminally underrated places that produce wonderful wines but fall under the radar of most people's consciousness? Any thoughts about that? Places that people should think about? 
I think Greece is going to be one of those spots. Mm. They make, well, the only problem we have is not many people know how to pronounce ayoryktiko. <laughs> ayoryktiko. Ayoryktiko. Wow. Or casino uh, uh, mavro, which sounds like casino, but Close. it's with an X. So just say casino mavro. That's basically how it sounds. And But there are these rich red wines, full-bodied. They have lots of acidity and tons of tannins. So they, most of the time, depending on the producer, need a little bit of time, a little waiting. Um, but they, you can still find top, top-of-the-line producers, even best of the best for under $40 a bottle. It, and just for a, a average bottle, you know, you don't have to spend more than $15 and get an excellent, excellent Greek wine. And I think for new wine drinkers, Greece is going to be an interesting place uh, for that reason. And we'll have fun learning how to pronounce all the neat grape varieties they have there. Mm-hmm. They have a wine, and everyone thinks it's it's crap, but it's not. It's called Savatiano, and it's a white grape that grows. Actually, if you go to Athens, there it's like all over. <laughs> like it grows in the city. There's like Savatiano vineyards with these old vines growing in Athens. And traditionally would just go in this wine called Retsina, which is actually making an interesting comeback as well. But some people are oaking it similar to how you would treat Chardonnay. And it's rich like Chardonnay, and it has this amazing, incredible body, but has this subtle Greek style. I don't know how to describe Greek Mm -hmm. style, but imagine a perfect Greek salad with feta. Like every flavor is extremely pointillized in a Greek salad. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how their wines wines are kind of like that too. Mm -hmm. Like, each it's not wine muddled it's distinct it's, it's crisp it's very each crisp mm-hmm. that's exactly right so i think you know as our palates get smarter we'll get more excited about greek wine and especially for the value portugal is another place with obscene values i can you can pick up a bottle of castellao for something like 9 or 10 dollars or is symington family uh, i saw this wine called altania or altania it's like $9 a bottle and it's a duro red so it's made in that incredible place i was describing and it's a dry red wine it's just made with the same grapes as port it's absolutely delicious but $10 a bottle like get out that's unbelievable mm. and then where you were in spain so underrated they have more vineyards in terms of area more land dedicated to vineyards than any other country in the entire world and for the most part the spanish are very they're kind of lackadaisical about their wines they, you know they're not quite as obsessed as as the portuguese well, depends on who you talk to of course but the as the general mm-hmm. you know i remember being in parts of spain and you could literally go into a store and buy wine in a plastic jug like that's how they would sell their wine though if you go to the basque country and you start talking about chacolí then they they get all nationalistic and separatist on you because it is the wine of the basque country yeah that's true have passion around that yeah there's yeah. a there is a there is definitely a passion around the chacolí like mm-hmm. you said but the but for the most part you know the castilla la mancha region in spain which is the uh this mesquitas central i'm sorry i have terrible meseta central thank you um <laughs> the meseta central is uh, where they grow the dominant amount of grape varieties in uh, the most amount of vineyards. And there's so many amazing grapes there. Eren uh, used to be the most planted grape variety in the world, and it's now been pulled out. But as a white grape, if it's 
grown properly and cared for a little bit more, you know, where they actually control how much it produces, um, can make a quite a wonderful wine, similar again to Chardonnay. Uh, so something, there's something I learned about myself out Spain is um, I like garnacha, and I read about it. Pro- I don't know if I read it in your book or I read it about it somewhere else, but it's a difficult grape apparently. And then one of the bottles I like, which is a budget bottle, the the name of the wine is called La Maldita, and it has a picture of a woman screaming, almost oh, like an yeah. Almodovar movie. Yeah. And I look at the label, and they said the garnacha grape is a very difficult grape. Um, very few people find affinity with it or it's not as obviously a crowd pleaser so they call it la maldita the damned grape oh interesting i like it so i guess garnacha that says something about me is uh gar- garnacha is you know it's the same grape as grenache but the spanish actually have more, more clonal diversity in spain so they believe that the true origin of garnacha may in fact be in Spain, um, there's a little bit of an argument happening in Italy right now um, because the island of Sardinia actually also has garnacha, where it's called Cananao. And they think that actually it came from Sardinia to Spain, but by way of the original homeland of all the grape varieties, which is in the Georgia. Mm, this I, like I love origin wars. There's <laughs> no cultural wars. Ours. Yeah. Um, so garnacha is really special grape, and it's actually planted all over. And that is the primary grape in Chateauneuf de Pop. That explains a few things. There what you places go. have you not been to but are on your radar to explore? Oh, yeah. So I really want to go to Austria, and I mm. haven't been there yet because Vienna is another one of those vine cities. I've been very fascinated by cities that actually have working vineyards in them that are not just like, oh, look at our cute little two-acre vineyard. They're like, mm-hmm. we actually make wine here. And I've heard, and someone who's Austrian will correct my pronunciation, that there are these things called hurigens or hurigens that are basically like, like you would have a local tavern that makes their own beer, a brewery. They basically have the same thing, but for wine in Austria. So I'm imagining going to Vienna around the time of harvest, maybe a little after, and to one of these here and, and drink the local wine that has been freshly made for me. Like that is one of my dreams is to go and do that. Another region that I'm deeply curious is the Santiago Mendoza connection. That's how I like to call it. Um, between Santiago and Mendoza, there is a massive range of yeah, mountains. That's Chile and Argentina we're talking oh, about. Oh, sorry, Chile. Yeah. Sorry, Chile and, and oh, Mendoza. Yeah, no. in, uh, in Argentina and Chile, Santiago and Chile. And the Andes Mountains cuts, it divides the two regions. And Chile makes a very different tasting wine than Argentina does. It's very, very different. It's difficult for me to get into Chilean wine. There's it, something about it. But, it, is, yeah. it is very challenging. Mm-hmm. It's because it's tart. Mm. It has, they have um, some inclement weather. The tannins and the wines develop differently. But they do make Pinot Noir and Syrah really well. Mm. Those might be two you want to try. Uh, the So I want to see the change between going over the mountains and I want to make the drive. And there's a switchback highway that goes over the mountains and it looks like hell. But I want to do- go through hell to get to Mendoza. I want to see what it's like. Maybe take a plane back. Mm-hmm. It's like takes an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> and just a quick plug. One of my early episodes with Rodrigo de Medeiros, he, he did an around the world trip and one of his stops was the Mendoza region and, and going on wine of uh, his tours. So take a look at the early blog as well. Yeah, do it. I'm, I'm thinking about your book. 
and your site. And they have so many beautifully designed infographics and more importantly for a geography geek like me, maps. And I've also noticed on your Instagram a photo of a hand-drawn map of the Northern Rhone in France. And can you talk a little bit about how you guys try to capture the essence of places of these regions through visual design and writing choices? What goes through your mind? It's not just a, a dry geographical drawing of, of regions. Um, what's the, the thought process in order to really get that excitement of a place? The greatest challenges for us has been to figure out how to communicate the sense of place in a map. Um, because on the one hand, the, all the maps are sort of standardized in the way they're designed. And then on the other hand, Some regions don't need the same level of detail mm -hmm. that a standardized map system would provide. And so I've been playing around with hand drawing certain maps. I did a hand drawing of Hungarian wine regions, uh, this really cool wine importer uh, from New York helped contribute an article and I was like, oh, I really want to make a map. So so we mapped, you know, the idea out and I created this sort of fun map of Hungary and the Hungarian wine regions. And it seemed to me more welcoming to a region that is as esoteric mm -hmm. and so not obscure, welcome man. and obscure as Hungary, which, you know, is a very old traditional winemaking region. And they'd be like, we're not obscure. But... Uh, <laughs> But to Americans, it, it can be. Um, so I wanted to sort of change the perception of the complexity with something that's hand-drawn, communicates the ease. Oh, it's just a little doodle. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, it's, it's very easy to love because it's hand-drawn. And I've been experimenting more with stepping away from the clean graphics that we've done traditionally on the site to something that's more... It has physical work put into it because wine has physical work put into it somehow putting it on paper like i looked at the page longer mm -hmm. like i reflected on what i was looking at a little bit differently and so when i got the book back and and i made my own personal self-feedback i was like this lacks the same amount of gesture that a glass of wine yeah. has so fortunately i'm making another book so Hopefully. <laughs> well, let's talk about that because I want to ask you about your future plans. But that's really interesting because going hand-drawn, I'm imagining when you have wine and, and it's a really great experience with, with people you care about and great conversation, the whole notion of, here, let me take this napkin, let me draw something out, or let me just do something tactile. It's, it's a very human touch that the infographics are beautiful and, and they're digital. They're you know binary ones and zeros in mm -hmm, a way. Mm -hmm. But there's something about the analog touch of map making that adds a certain excitement or maybe a certain level of uh, personalization into into getting to know a region which is interesting i haven't thought of that yeah and it's and it's really cool because the students of wine will take our maps and get sheets of paper and cover them over the maps and trace the regions mm -hmm. and learn the region by tracing it and That is how they are learning, yeah. is by physically writing it down and doing that motion and taking the time to outline the shape and consider the fact that it's a square shape mm -hmm. or a star yeah. shape or whatever it is. And that to, to not only to embed it in their memory, well, they want to embed it in their memory because they want to pass the test, but to sort of pause on the form. And when I started, you know, we, you don't see about the maps is when I'm making them, I have 
Google Maps open. I have downloaded NASA, some really high-res TIFF files from, you can just download, they're free. You can just go and get them if you know what tools to use. And and I'm looking at different sort of elevations and I see little valleys. And while I'm making the maps, just even for me, I'm learning more about the region. Like I did Champagne, which nobody cares about terroir and Champagne. It's all about what if it's from Montana to Reem or what grape varieties it used or what producer made it or how long it sat on Tirage. Tirage is how long the bottle sits around in the cellar. And essentially. And but when I worked on the map of Champagne, because people were like, we really want a Champagne map. I'm like, I'm not sure why you want, but okay, let's do it. Um, and it had all the different locations of all the Grand Cru vineyards and all the Premier Cru vineyards, which is very important for the bottle. Like if you look at the thing, it'll say da-da-da, Premier Cru, so you can actually identify where it is on a map. Mm-hmm. But I started to notice a theme, like which direction the vineyards were facing because of the hell shades. It was the Star my- of the Devil. Sorry. It was the star of the devil. Right. <laughs> and then I noticed like which direction they were facing. And then I found this whole zone, the Cote Bar down in the south, which is very actually right next to Burgundy. That whole area, the Obe and the Cote Bar, is all these southern facing hills. And they're, none of them are Premier Crew or Grand Crew Vineyards. They're just called Ocha Crew, mm-hmm. Other Crew. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, that's the spot, guys. <laughs> This is where you get all the sweet value wine for champagne. I mean, champagne's Mm -hmm. not a value, period. But this is where you can maybe find some really cool up-and-coming stuff. And sure enough, if you start looking at what's happening in champagne, all the cool kids are in the coat. Coat to bar. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're taking it back to my childhood. My mom would. And people have heard the story already. My mom would buy me atlases, and I say plural for a reason. And I would open them, and my fingers would go through all the pathways, and not just the major cities. And it was the double act of of trying to visualize what it would be like to go between you know Paris and Lyon and think about what the villages might look like, but also an imaginative power about what it could be and how could I get there. Until I took out the magic marker and I started drawing fictional subway lines and airplane lines all over the place. And that's why I needed more more atlases. But there's something very important about learning and that tactile experience, that that kind of analog, hand-drawn approach. This is a stimulus to that. Yeah. How about some great restaurants or wine bars you have been to that really stand out? And not necessarily only because of their selection, but also because of their vibe. What makes places like that great? That is a great, great question because there's a difference between a wine bar that's super clean and you go up and there's nothing there. There's just a little list for you to choose from and you they pull out, it's all sanitary and they pull out the bottle and they pour you some and mm-hmm. you're just alone with your glass of wine. Or you go to a place, there's one in Seattle, uh, there's actually a couple of places that are really good in this format. Bar Ferdinand is one, Lower Bar Ferdinand, where it's a store. Mm-hmm. And they also can, you can drink wine there too. It's a little awkward, but it's totally doable. And then Le Caviste downtown, where you go in and it's like, this is what we have today. Mm-hmm. And whenever you're ready to order, we'll take your order. And you have as much time as you need to figure out whatever sort of system they have 
Like in Bar Ferdinand, they have just prices on the bottle and you're not really sure if that's the price to drink there, if that's the take home price. And then you have to you have this experience where you ask for it. It's a little awkward, but you're having an adventure searching for your bottle. And the adventure places are always my favorite where it's like, ooh, digging for treasure, Mm -hmm. finding a bottle that looks cool and that I want to drink. Like, I don't shop by labels. I know my producers. But by gum, I shop by labels. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can't stop myself. I'm curious. I want to read the names. I want to see how they chose to create those labels. Some of those labels have been the same for 100 years. I want to see that 100-year-old design. So, you know, there's places like this all over the world. I walked into a shop in Portugal and in uh, Porto, which had in the center all these old Madeira wines from the teens to the 1920s, just with dust on them. And, you know, whatever amount of euros they were, it didn't matter because they were priceless to someone like myself who was digging for treasure. And you're like, wow, 80 euros? That's nothing. Like, yes, I will buy this wine. Not a big deal. Like, let's Mm. drink it tonight. (laughs) Let's drink a 1914, whatever. So I love the adventure. And you know, wine bars come and go. I'm not sure why this is, but I've noticed the ones who really stick to this sort of ideology where they're not they're not forcing themselves into a, only a specific genre. Like we only do biodynamic wines. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to create an atmosphere with what they have and what's working right now. And maybe it's mostly biodynamic wine, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. whatever their goal is. Um, but I like that the best because it makes it more fun to pick out your wine and drink it. Mm-hmm. I really like Le Caviste, and I I forget the name of the proprietor, but what he does is very different from those uh, wine bars you describe where they say, what kind of flavor do you like? And it's almost like an if-then chart that they have in order to try to sell you the next glass of wine. But he 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 has if-then statements in that framework we talked about earlier, but he wants to know about what you like and the flavor and then he thinks about geography and regions because he's very well versed in the regions especially in france of of the wine so he he engages with you much the way a a colleague in an academic setting would in order to try to figure out what makes sense for you and it's not intimidating it's just a, a mutual understanding of trying to figure out what's best for you and just be open and talk about what you like and don't be afraid and it's yeah. just a great environment to do that. That's yeah. a great point, actually, because we're always like flavor finding. The sommelier, you know, I used to work as a sommelier and I'm always like, well, do you want white or red? Mm. Okay, now we narrowed that down. All right, what are you eating? Okay, all right. You know, like, does this sound good to you or does that sound, you know, you're always doing this thing. But no, it's more like, hey, how's your day today? Right? Oh, yeah. Did you get outside? Mm-hmm. Oh, you didn't? Oh, okay. Were you happy about that or was did you want to get outside? Okay. Are you feeling exploratory today you know, or conservative yeah. today? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, you need a bottle of sunshine because you didn't have your sun yet. Here, Here is something from the Cote de Rhone region. We've been picking on Cote de Rhone all night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they get a lot of sun down there. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you will get some rays through this bottle, bud. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I like that. I like that. Because honestly, I know what I like, but I don't care. When I go to a wine bar, I don't, I'm just like... What do you like? And th- it's funny because I hated that question, <laughs> but I'm like, what do you? What are yeah. you passionate about right now? Like, I I know what I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. I know that intuitively. Like, I know it too well. 
I have I have sucked it dry. Mm-hmm. What? Tell me about your passion. And essentially, you're learning about the the person on the other side of the counter, whether it's somebody who works there or somebody sitting next to you. So, yeah. whatever environment allows for that conversation and that sort of outing of your wine profile without shame is is a place I want to be at. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, so let me change the subject a little bit, and you you touched on this earlier. I want to talk a little bit about the notion of the wine culture and how the the wine culture in the United States is different from other countries. Or is it too simplistic to say that there is one wine culture in the United States and instead there are regional differences? You know, if you were to break it down, the U.S. is, is very diverse across from the middle to the edges. And like East Coast wine culture is definitely different than West Coast wine culture. And part of that might be because the West Coast, there are quite a bit more vineyards, working massive vineyards and winemaking done in a very American way. Whereas in the East Coast that we're looking more towards Europe for our inspiration, and it's sort of this aspirational thing that you don't really do. So you kind of have some ideologies, although New York is now producing quite a bit of wine, so I should shut my mouth. Yeah, it's different than in Europe. The most obvious thing is when you go to uh, somewhere to have a drink and everyone who is between the ages of 18 plus gets a pitcher of wine and they drink it and they hang out with their friends. It's a casual affair. Like in the street, there's all these tables out and everybody's chilling, having wine. Mm. We don't have that here. We don't have a a beer approach to wine. And it could be because wine is more expensive, but I beg to differ that there's quite a great deal of wine that's just as affordable as it is in parts of Europe. You know, especially coming from California, there's there's a ton of affordable wine. I mean, at least I did. I mean, I remember getting the wine subscription and the bottle would come in and it was very serious and it's the opening of the bottle and having a special opener to open a bottle of wine was this whole procedural experience. And you kind of create your own value to that. But on the other hand, is it's just wine. Like, it's just fermented grape juice. And people will say, it's just fermented grape juice. But it really is. <laughs> and it's just like beer in that respect. On the one hand, I want people to dig deeper than the casual approach to wine and not taking wine so seriously. And I want people to ask those questions of taste but not everyone's going to get there. And I have to accept the fact that that might be 20% of the people out there that actually want to know why they, why they taste flowers or smell flowers in a glass of Gewürztraminer, whereas everyone else just wants to drink a glass of wine. I just want a dry red wine, <laughs> you know? And so the dry red wine lovers shouldn't feel like they're being hoity-toity just because they want to drink wine. Like, we have this thing, like, you have to have wine in a certain glass. And and I, maybe I proliferated this with our website with all these really cool infographics on which kind of glass you should use. But at the same point, I'd, I'm going to drink it out of a cup if that's all I have. Mm-hmm. But there is, I saw that article about the, the wine glasses, and it, it, there is reasoning around that to concentrate flavor, to concentrate smells yeah. and every every wine has its unique characteristic and you're touching on a, on a question i wanted to ask you and wine and you're touching on the fact that it has a somewhat paradoxical status it is something that is so ubiquitous mm-hmm. it's so essential ever-present part of our lives through history 
But at the same time, it has a culture of appreciation that can seem esoteric and difficult. And you make an appearance in a documentary film about sommeliers, winemakers, and wine appreciators. It's titled Some Into the Bottle, S-O-M-M, Into the Bottle. And at one point, one of the people in the film says, and I'm going to quote, can there be any other business where there is so much bullshit? So would it be fair to say that you're attempting to cut through the bullshit, or is it unfair to describe a lot of what goes on in the inner circles of wine culture as bullshit? Or is this a question that's going to get you in trouble? I mean, Carol <laughs> Meredith, she said that. She, is so, she also makes delicious freaking Syrah. And I'm willing to tout bullshit about her wines if I need be. But yeah, absolutely. But it's like the art business. It's art, fundamentally. Here's the difference. I can look at a picture of kitties and put it on my wall and call it art. Mm-hmm. Or I can become an art appreciator and want something more. And some people are going to want something more out of their art. And some people just need to put something on the wall to fill up the space. You know, so it depends on you. It's a mm-hmm. personal choice. So she's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love that quote. I, I'm glad that he included that in the movie. And something that strikes me, it's not just about wine appreciation, but I think it's a lot of disciplines and a lot of career paths. There will always be people that try to conserve their turf or conserve their knowledge or conserve their value by obscuring the concepts or the way that they do their work and do it through language that is difficult to decipher when in fact you could make it simpler for people to understand. I'm thinking in particular, given my background of IT professionals <laughs> who are going to get at back at me after this episode comes out, where that happens a lot, where a lot of concepts that maybe could have been understood by a lot of people if they just changed the vocabulary and their methodology, they just refuse to do it for 10, 20 years in order yeah. to keep and entrench themselves. And I wonder if some of the same happens in the wine subculture. Oh. The appreciators well, the want to keep that. that terroir... This esoteric word that's actually French, that's hard to pronounce, is the thing that we use to talk about dirt. (laughs) (laughs) You can sort of work from that point forward and have a pretty good idea of what kind of BS is going on in the wine biz. But you seem... You seem unfazed by getting criticism either from the elitist side or from the popularizers. You're kind of... I don't know if if it's fair to say you're kind of towing the line in between... Um, you're more of a proletariat popularizer yeah. or am I being completely unfair? I would say, yeah, I would say that yes, that in the last, in the the work that I've done in the last five years has been more towards the masses mm-hmm. than it has been. And I certainly have a few haters and it only took me a few detailed IP searches to figure out who these people were. And I mean, I have to admit, when it first started happening, I was terrified and petrified and I felt really terrible and I felt beat up and I second guessed myself. And then I read this book by this guy named Greg Cardone and he he's like a sales marketing dude. And he's like, haters gonna hate, mm-hmm. love the haters. And it's funny because you hear and then you start listening to Jay-Z and you're going, I get you, bro. Yeah. I get you. There's going to be haters. And the the thing that Grant Cardone said that I thought worked with me was if there's anything of value that they can tell you, take it and do it. Mm-hmm. If it's just them being uh, needing a feeling of importance, 
which if you've read that book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, everyone, the core thing is people just want to feel important. If it's just that, then just let it slide. Mm -hmm. Like keep doing what you're doing and you'll just get more haters the better you are Mm -hmm. at doing what you're doing. So hopefully you have some haters too that you've got to deal with. Mm, I hope so because Oscar (laughs) Wilde said there's only one thing that is worse than being talked poorly about it and that's not being talked about at all. That's right. Something like that. That's right. So how do you keep Wine Folly evolving over time, haters and supporters? What's in store for the future? Is it evolution of its core identity or something new coming up if you can even talk about it as top secret? Well, I would say that it, that I am making a new book, that's happening. And that is going to build a whole nother section of our site because mm-hmm. we're doing that work in tandem of doing a major update to our site. And um, it, it sounds, and you know, slap, slap back at me if I'm pressing too much, that it's more than just a, a user experience or aesthetic shift. There's something conceptual no, <laughs> going yeah, on. Um, there's but, definitely something conceptual going mm-hmm. on. Uh, definitely. I see the internet changing and I want to build towards the future and Mm -hmm. I want to make the future that I want to live in. And since I spend a lot of time online, I can at least make my website work the way that I want it to. Mm -hmm. And I don't like the way blogs work. I don't like to scroll through tons of pages and it's really hard to find what you're looking for to see if it's even available. We're in this weird state where we're content starved, but there's so much content. There's so much content, but it's all garbage. It's all derivative content. And people are tired are tired of seeing that. And and I said that before with like, oh, I made these infographics and now I see them everywhere. Mm-hmm. I literally do. And I'm tired of making infographics because everybody's doing it. And like that is not the future. It's not infographics. Like that is not where the future is going. So... Maybe that's where we got our start, but that's not where we're going to finish at. And I'll look forward to it because what you've done till now has been extremely influential in my my evolution and understanding of wine. Madeline, it was great spending time with you today, and it's a refreshing experience uh, to to have your enthusiasm and your genuine voice here. And I mean that figuratively and literally now. So thank <laughs> you so much for being here. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave a review about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. Don't forget that this episode has a companion page on our site where you can find out more about Madeline, more about Wine Folly, and it includes relevant links covering what we talked about today. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where more podcasts, videos, and written content live. And as always... You can subscribe and receive the latest, greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, take your pick. Until the next time, this must be the place. Mm